Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Coffee Connections. My name is Seth Weiner, and I am your rock chenier. It's a beautiful spring, although I'd say you could, it's a beautiful spring because you could see the sky, but all you see is a yellow. It's yellow everywhere. It's like the pollen is just crazy, but that's Atlanta every, every year at this time of year. But uh, I guess that's a good sign, right? A lot of pollen means a lot of flowers coming up. We'll see. Come, yeah, now you have a reason to come back in April, right? Well, uh, I, I apologize for uh, taking the week off. I know many, were, I've got a couple emails asking, where was Coffee Connections? I was virtually, I wasn't in person, but I was virtually doing the CAI, National Auctioneer Association. That's the Certified Auctioneer Institute. It's a three-year program. We meet once a year. Uh, so I did the CAI one course and uh, next year two, and then the year after that three. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, well, you don't know, but it was a really interesting course, a great way uh, to connect with other auctioneers and continue my education as an auctioneer. So uh, I'm excited and motivated to share what I learned with uh, all of my clients and more. Um, and on that note, it is very busy still. We've got a lot of virtual auctions coming up. So uh, and they're everyone that we've been doing them with and my colleagues as well, everyone's seen a lot of success. So don't be afraid to go virtual, folks. It's uh, It might feel a little scary, but once you do it, it's great. Uh, and the fall, it is time to start planning your fall. So don't uh, put your head in the dirt. Think hybrid. Uh, think about how people can be at your event and at home at the same time and how to merge them together. Of course, feel free to contact me at yourrocksneer.com. Happy to share my knowledge, but uh, don't put your head in the dirt, in the sand, in the ground, whatever. I mean, unless you're like gardening, then you could do that. But you got to take it out and you got to start planning. All right, folks, that's not why you're here. Not to hear about me. You're here to hear our guest at Coffee Connections. Today, we've got Michael Waller with the Georgia Appleseed Center for Law and Justice. Now, Michael is the executive director. He leads Georgia Appleseed team in the development of innovative policy solutions and tools to keep Georgia's children safe at home and in school and out of the criminal justice system. Michael is a frequent speaker on the devastating consequences of exclusionary dis school discipline, poor school climate, and unhealthy housing on marginalized children, particularly children in poverty, children of color, and children and youth in foster care. So please, ladies and gentlemen, uh, join me in welcoming Michael to the show. Hey, Mike. Hi there. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, I hope you're having a good spring. How's everything going in the uh, Waller household? It's going fine. I was mentioning to you before that uh, there's three kids here doing school virtual schooling. Um, so at any moment, there are five. My wife's working too, so five streaming Zoom calls or videos out of this household. Very busy. Yeah, yeah. AT and T or Comcast or Google Fiber. One of them must love you a lot. Yeah, it's it's, <laughs> it's so far has worked out for us. But you might pick up um, some running around or a dog barking or some yet yeah, some kids yelling at each other. Um, and so if you do, I apologize in advance. No worries. It only makes the show that much more enjoyable. Well, it is Coffee Connection. Before we get into anything, are you a coffee drinker? I do drink coffee. I do. I yeah. Do you have a, happen to have a coffee mug? I do. It's a very beat up, it's a very beat up coffee mug. It's a well oh. used, well loved um, coffee mug. It gets a lot of use. It's kind of, it's one of those steel ones that, that keeps things hot forever. So it just now, hold on a second. Your law and justice and steel, those don't go together unless you're defending someone or prosecuting someone that stole. Now, so steel, where did you, uh, where did, uh, when and where did you get this uh, 
this one actually was a it was it was a gift um, from someone, and it's it's one of those first the first generation of those vacuum sealed ones or whatever. Where would you remember? This was not that long ago, but you know you got one and you put coffee and you put the top on it. Really did keep things hot forever. It was kind of a miracle. Well, this is it, yeah, it just one of those, um, and uh, it's starting to kind of all the color starting to come off of it. But like I said, it's well loved, well used. And what kind of coffee do you put in there? So I don't, I don't do the, you know, when you look on the side of good coffee, it says brew two tablespoons for six ounces of cold water or something like that. I don't know who actually does that, but I do, we do it on the stronger side here, but it's usually a drip coffee. And it's not drip. Okay. Not French press. Go with the drip. Well, we have two, there's a, uh, we got to the point where the French, the volume of the French press was just, was just. <laughs> yeah, that, that will do it. French press solo makes sense. But yeah, when you're. Otherwise, it's, you're talking to for more than two people. It's uh, it can be a bit. Now, what about um, uh, creamers? Are you going uh, are you going milk? Are you going half and half? Are you going almond, soy? What's your flavor? We're uh, we're we're 100 half and half in this household. And if we go get a latte or something, it's, it's always it's always full fat, whole milk. And then, did you have a uh, favorite uh, local coffee shop here in Atlanta since you moved yeah. here? Press and Grind is one that I like a lot. That's a great little coffee shop. It's All right. Island area. Where is that at? Virginia Highland uh, area. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to go ahead and hand the mic to you. Can you let everyone know about Georgia Appleseed? Sure. I'm really happy to do that. I'm always really, I'm always <laughs> happy to talk about Georgia Appleseed for as long as anyone will let me. It's a great organization. So my name is Michael Waller. I'm the executive director. And Georgia Appleseed Center for Law and Justice is a nonprofit, nonpartisan law center. And we are completely committed to advancing justice and equity for all all of Georgia's children. Um, we focus primarily on the population where we feel like they have historically been um, discriminated against or at disadvantage. Instead of our black and brown children, our LGBTQ kids, um, kids in experiencing poverty, kids with disabilities, and children in foster care. And children in foster care are a very special population for us, and you and I might talk a little bit more about our work with them in the future. But we're a law center, so primarily we're like a law firm. We have lawyers, and we look at things from a law and policy perspective. Most of our work is looking at policy and trying to figure out what types of systemic changes need to be made to Georgia's education system and juvenile justice system and housing systems to improve the lives of these kids. So we work, everything we work on, we work on in three levels. Um, we talk and listen carefully to individuals in the community. So that means the kids themselves, their parents, their community leaders. Um, and then while we're there, doing a training or something like that, or, or just doing a listening session or interviewing someone or talking to them, we're also trying to offer resources back to them. So we have trainings and manuals and guides for parents and teachers and kids, um, help guides, for example, on how to navigate behavior and learning challenges or the school discipline process. And then in the second level, we're, we try to work with communities to organize them, um, help them develop collaboratives that can work towards systemic change and policy change on that local level. We're talking about real systemic change, trying to change the way the systems work to better serve these kids and support these kids. And then finally, we take what we learn from those communities um, and those individuals, we take them all the way up to the highest levels of state government and even federal government. So we have relationships with policymakers across the state, and we run two um, statewide coalitions, the Georgia Education Climate Coalition. And we'll talk about what education climate or school climate is in just a second in the Georgia Healthy Housing Coalition. And those coalitions are collections of experts and organizations from across the state that come together regularly to talk about challenges, barriers that are in the way of these kids having stable, healthy homes, or these kids being able to stay in class learning 
um, and out of the juvenile justice system. That's a brief summary of our work, but I and um, I will definitely go into some of those in more detail because it's it's actually pretty exciting. You used the word innovation when you started, and um, and you also asked me in our in your email to me you said you know, let's prepare to talk about some of the challenges that your organizations face, um, some successes and challenges. And for us, challenges are kind of what we're about. Our whole the whole reason we're around is to identify really thorny, tough challenges that kids face. Um, that Georgians face, and then try to figure out ways to work out solutions, pragmatic working solutions that will make their lives better. So how, how many people are involved in the organization? That's, that's, a, really, that's a really great question because it, it uh, kind of scratches at the surface at one of the ways that we work and what, one of the reasons the organization is so special. So there are seven staff members. Um, that's it. So it's not a, not a big staff. Now, we're part mm -hmm. of a large network across the country. But Georgia Appleseed has seven staff members. But the reason we've been able to do all the remarkable things we've been able to do since 2005 when we were founded is because we rely on a tremendous amount of pro bono and volunteer support from the community. So just last year, I think we had 1,800 hours donated from the state's law firms, primarily lawyers donating time for us. So it's over $800,000 worth of those uh, pro bono hours. And that's how we get stuff done. We ask when people donate and they volunteer for us, we ask them to do what they do best. So we ask lawyers, for example, for example, to uh, do research for us, to do interviews, uh, to represent kids um, in cases, to to write for us and write briefs, those sorts of things. We ask economists to actually look at data and break it down for us. We ask statisticians to do the same to help us sort of crunch numbers and figure out uh, what's in the data. Uh, we work with bankers. We work with all kinds of professionals, and we ask them again just to do what they do best, but do it for the kids of Georgia. Now, is this your full-time job, or is this uh, part-time for you as well? Oh, this, <laughs> yeah, this is full-time. Okay, yeah. it's full-time all the time job, and because um, there's, you know, the thing is, like Georgia, Georgia's a, an amazing place, um, and there's a lot of resources, a lot of wealth here, but there's a lot of poverty mm -hmm. here too, um, and there's a lot of work to be done in Georgia. Georgia has a lot to be proud of. For yeah. sure, um, but there's also a lot of work to be done, especially for uh, for our children. Um, hundreds of thousands of Georgia's children, for example, live in poverty, and um, and that's just something that doesn't have to be. Like that's mm -hmm. there, there are solutions to that, um, and uh, and we're working hard to to try to bring the state around um, and put it in, help put it in a good place to sort of take advantage of some of those solutions and change that. Where did the organization come to be out of? So the, Georgia Appleseed is part of, like I said, a larger network. Um, there's something called the Georgia Appleseed Movement. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. the Appleseed Movement or the National Appleseed Network. And there's 17 of us um, okay. in the country and in Mexico. Uh, we're, we're independent organizations. Um, the network office is really sort of a coordinating office that helps right, sort of share information, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. But we are united in our approach to things. And and two of those, two of the main things that we share are this, this approach towards systemic change, so looking at issues carefully, and then how we use um, volunteer and pro bono resources from the community. Mm -hmm. So traditionally, legal, nonprofit legal centers would use pro bono from lawyers to really help represent um, you know, tenants, for example, who are facing eviction, or, or um, you know, women in domestic violence cases, or mm -hmm. dependency cases, because who couldn't afford an attorney, which, by the way, is a wonderful thing to do, and, and people should continue to do that. I myself am a former legal services attorney, and that's really rewarding work. 
Um, but what the Appleseed movement you know, did was say, well, let's look at what lawyers are, are doing. What's, what, is, what are the experts at, these particular lawyers? And can we use that to move and push the needle on some big societal issues like racism or um, like the school to prison pipeline? Um, or And other Appleseed centers also work on other issues mm-hmm. that we work on, for example, um, economic uh, injustice and that sort of thing. So, and, you know, I think of lawyers and I think they're well to do. They all drive Porsches, you know, they're, they're doing well. How does, how does an organization like this define the needs and, and, the, and relate to the folks that are in need? Sure. You know, that's a, um, that's a big part of how we approach a problem is that very question. And um, it's, in fact, that question is why I'm at this particular organization. It's what oh. invited, encouraged me um, when I was looking around and when I read about this organization and learned more about it. That question is the question that, that, that made me realize that Georgia Appleseed is definitely the place to be. So it's one of the ways that we're really unique. We are a law and policy center. Um, and so we have experts on staff that know a lot. Um, but part of our, we say our theory of change, the way that we approach a problem is a certain humility. Uh, it is not our place, and we have to be very, very disciplined about this, um, to define the problem or even just identify a problem or an injustice. What we do is we go out and we listen to the community. Mm-hmm. The community identifies the problem, and the community identifies potential, the barriers to, to success and the potential solutions. It's our job as policy experts um, to translate that into policy language. Um, and there's a couple of different ways you can think about this. So I'm a big fan of John Dewey, and he wrote a book called The Public and Its Problems um, in the early part of the 20th century. And in that, he really talks about the role of experts, that experts, if, they don't fall, if they're not disciplined, they will invariably develop a solution to a problem that benefits them, even if they don't realize it. It could be good intention. Mm. And so you have to be very, yeah, very disciplined about how you approach a problem. And an expert's role is, again, to go listen to the public, listen to the individuals, the communities, and then translate that problem. But if you, know, if you, if you don't read John Dewey and you maybe read um, Brian Stevenson, maybe you prefer that approach. And Brian Stevenson would say, right, go and sit. You need to go and sit with people. You need to be in the presence of people. You need to listen mm-hmm. to them. And it's the same idea. So what we try to do is when we go out into a community, we are going to listen primarily um, and find what we would call solutions, although solutions are sometimes insights or questions or something else from people who are directly impacted. And then we raise those up. Now, sometimes that that conversation or series of conversations is very formal. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, we did a giant, uh, we did a number of these types of projects over the years, but let's say 2010, for example, uh, we did a, a big study on school discipline across the state and we interviewed over 200 people. So we sent teams of two lawyers out into the field to interview 200 plus people about school discipline in Georgia and to learn now, now school discipline, private schools included, or just uh, public schools school discipline primarily. But we've done the same type of research on the juvenile justice system, on race and law enforcement and the relationship there on school-based behavioral health and other issues. But that's a very formal way, right? You, line up interviews, you go and you sit down and have interviews with different types of stakeholders. Um, and there are listening sessions and other formal mechanisms too. And then sometimes it's more informal. You know, we'll do a training and we, we ask for questions or we learn about someone who's experienced something, we reach out to them. But it's always a priority for us. And we have to always remember that um, as experts, we're just, we're just different. And that even if we have personal life experience, we have to be cautious about how our expertise um, affects our decision making. And I can give you some examples about how that works, but um, 
but that's a really that's an important driver for us. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's uh, just got to kind of keep yourself in a. You got to keep a mirror with you and always have a have a little like chat with yourself before you act. Uh, just to remind yourself to listen, remind yourself to take your thoughts out of the process. It sounds like. Yeah, and I can give you a quick example. So yeah. let's take uh, healthy housing for example. So one of our big program areas is to increase access and ultimately ensure access, like make it possible for every low-income family in the state to have access to stable, healthy housing. I'm really careful about those words. Affordable housing, we all know, is a, is a crisis in this state. There's just not enough of it. Um, there's just not enough housing for folks. Yeah. But s- people don't talk as much about the housing conditions that kids live in. And there's a, there's a real crisis in this state about very poor housing conditions that most of us would just not deem acceptable for anyone. And those mm. conditions have profound impacts on children. It affects their school outcomes, has an impact on their mental health, has an impact on their risk for criminal justice involvement. And ultimately, it plays a big role in cycles of intergenerational poverty. It's really, really critical and important. I mean, it plays a big role in kids' mm-hmm. lives. Stability does too. So there's a technical term that you don't hear about much, but it's something called school mobility. And this is how often kids move from school to school. Right, right. School yeah. mobility is directly tied to housing stability. And if you don't have a good, stable housing situation, the child is going to have to move. And every time a child moves, they take a hit on their ability to sort of perform in school. Um, it takes, it takes, it's just very difficult for kids to catch up. And some mm-hmm. populations are really at risk. So if you're in child in foster care and you move more than five times or five times your fifth move in foster care, you're looking at a 90% chance of being involved in the criminal justice system. So, Oh my gosh. That's a, whoa, that's a huge stat. So here's the so here here's the example I was talking about how you can if you don't listen carefully you might miss something. Um, so we we have close relationships with some of the other legal services providers in the state and and a wonderful organization is Atlanta. Mm-hmm. It's a truly venerable and really incredible organization. What was that organization again? Atlanta Legal Aid Society. Legal Aid. Gotcha. Um, it's one of the oldest legal aids in the country, and uh, we're lucky to have it here. It's an amazing organization. They have a partnership with CHOA, Children's Hospital of Atlanta, and they place lawyers inside the hospitals to provide services and supports for family members um, of children who are sick, right? Now, th- this idea of putting lawyers where people are going to be and need them is a great is a great idea. Other organizations mm-hmm. do it too. Atlanta Volunteer Lawyers um, Foundation puts lawyers inside schools uh, with their Stand By Your Neighbors program. Um, these are really important approaches. So Legal Aid, Atlanta Legal Aid has done that. Um, and they start hearing, those lawyers are hearing from parents and from doctors saying, hey, kids are coming in because they're sickened from the home. So asthma or injuries or other things, pest infestations, those sorts of things, or they've come in with chronic illnesses. We treated them. We're sending them home to an unhealthy environment to heal. Something needs to be done about this. Great. So I'm a lawyer. I'm a former legal services attorney. I'm thinking, great, this is a housing law question. And, um, and I can think of, I've got a long laundry list of, of additional protections I would love for Georgia to have for its low-income tenants, right? And I can mm-hmm. think of all kinds of procedural protections and those kinds of things. And it would be great, in my opinion, if we had those things. Um, but often to really use those things, you need an attorney. It doesn't help people uh, if they can't actually use the rights that they have without an attorney, right? So, so we started you know, asking the parents themselves, right? So what is it that you need? Do you need more protections? And what we heard back was, well, that would be great, but we do have protections. We just can't use them. Hmm. We can't use them for two reasons. 
One, we don't have access to attorneys unless we're really lucky. There are just not enough legal aid attorneys out there. And two, when we try to exercise our rights, because tenants in Georgia have a right to a, a, hell, a safe home, like landlords yeah. are required to make repairs. And the, I should say the vast majority of landlords do this, of course. We're talking about a smaller subset of the sorry, slumlord variety. Um, mm -hmm. When we try to do that, they evict us. So mm -hmm. we just get evicted. And so we started talking, too, with housing code enforcement folks, and that's the state regulating housing situations. And they said, yeah, well, we don't have a lot of resources, so if the person's about is on their way out or involved in eviction, we don't even go check. So we realized, well, these people, they can't even enforce the rights they already have. Giving them additional rights is probably not the most pragmatic approach. Mm -hmm. in you know, if we have one shot at this, Georgia is a very conservative state when it comes to landlord-tenant law. Um, what should we focus on? And so it turns out folks wanted to be able to enforce their rights. And so what we pushed for was an anti-retaliation statute. This is mm. the sexual harassment. You can make sexual harassment illegal, but if the people, the victims, the women are afraid to complain about sexual harassment because they'll be fired or otherwise uh, retaliated against, they, don't, they can't exercise those rights. So what we did with the help of Representative Sharon Cooper and a number of partner organizations was draft, lobby, push through, and ultimately get signed by the governor two years ago, really the most historic piece of landlord-tenant legislation hmm. in the 1970s in Georgia. And that was a law that made it unlawful for landlords to retaliate against tenants who were just asking the landlord to make repairs required under law. So that's an example of where you really need to listen to folks. Because as an expert, I had a long list of solutions yeah. to the problem. And, and frankly, yeah. I would have tried to legislate the problem, you know, like said, impose more obligations on landlords. And what the tenants actually told us is we just want to be able to use the, the rights we've got. Now, they weren't saying uh -huh. we have additional rights, but they were saying that we do uh -huh. have this right now. We just can't exercise them. Oh, that's powerful. Yeah. Um, well, how fast do you all move? I mean, when it uh, because I feel like, gosh, like COVID hit. I mean, you have all these policies you're working on, all this stuff you're working on that all of a sudden not only do you all have a new thing you have to work on and a new way. I mean, you talked about how you go to the communities and listen. I'm curious to know how you're listening to people uh, when, when COVID hit, how you're changing your, your mindset on what policies you're working on and then how you're getting ahead of the future because everything's changing. Yeah. So, so those are some, those are some challenges and COVID obviously was a tremendous challenge for us because it was a challenge for our kids uh, and that's, again, sort of where we always start. So um, COVID put children in the, the sort of crosshairs of extreme housing instability uh, with the economic impacts and the potential for a large number of evictions after tenants couldn't pay. Um, and so there were policy alternatives to that. And we fought pretty hard for a moratorium that the CDC eventually did enact. Um, we were fighting for one on the state level before that happened. Um, and uh, and then also, you know, we there were sort of the, the public became more aware of a pre-existing problem, which was a inequitable distribution right of school of access to school for kids, particularly virtual access and broadband access. So, um, you know, we were confronted with that problem right away, not to mention just the public health crisis and other things. So you asked about how, how fast can you sort of pivot? Well, initially, you do have to pivot because you have to, as best you can, either directly support or work with other organizations who are supporting 
kids um, in the moment with the immediate needs. So that's where we used our Georgia Education Climate Coalition partners to help develop plans for getting resources, for example, tablets and other things to kids where they needed them. Um, but you also have to always kind of keep your head up when you're in our position and really think about the long-term vision, because often we're working towards five and 10 year goals. Right, right, right. Yeah. So that is, can be really challenging um, on a number of levels because you're trying to, you're trying to maintain a coalition of folks for a very long period of time. So you have to be very strategic about organizing some wins right every now and then to keep folks moving, to keep folks eye on the ball. Um, and then also very intentional about developing relationships along the way. So you got to, when you're in yeah. the place that we are, you got to do both of those things. Um, and that can be, that can be very, that can be very, very challenging. I would also say it's also really wonderful, rewarding work because you have to really emphasize mm -hmm. relationships and you got to keep yourself disciplined about listening to the community. Um, I should also say, you know, we talk a lot about COVID. The, the other thing that happened this year which was so significant and so important for Georgia and its kids was the the sort of awakening for for some for a lot of folks about the significance of police violence against black mm -hmm. communities and how those black communities felt that violence and how they actually carried that with them on a day-to-day -day basis and how that affects children. Um, that mm -hmm. is bad, and I think we're still feeling that. We're going to see how that plays out. But and this this goes to sort of you know your role in sort of fundraising, you began to see movement from corporate America towards racial justice in a way that we have not ever before in terms of their willingness to make some statements about being you know supporting it, um, and it is really uh, that's a really significant shift that we can't let just kind of um, sort of fizzle out. Uh, we got to focus on. Um, so for example, one of the biggest challenges. That we that I that our organization faces is that we have worked for over a decade now to improve and change the way schools across the state handle student discipline. Mm -hmm. Student discipline, school discipline is sort of the third criminal justice system in the state. That's what I like to say. So you've got like the cr adult criminal justice system, you've got the juvenile justice system, and then you have the school justice system. And the school runs the school systems run tribunals that act mm -hmm. like quasi courts. And they kick people out, kick kids out of school that way. And those kids, when that happens, they are increased risk to the juvenile justice system. And sometimes they're sent directly from school. Actually, I shouldn't say sometimes, quite often. They're sent directly from school into the juvenile justice system or the criminal justice system as schools sort of engage in security-related discipline often. But sometimes not that. Sometimes uh, there are referrals to juvenile court that are more ambiguous than that. Um, so... We have worked on that for 10 years and we've made remarkable progress. I mean, I've got some statistics here I'll share with you. But since 2008, tens of thousands of fewer children every year are being kicked out of school. That's hmm. a really, really, really big deal. Uh, and, it's, yeah, and, and the population has increased. So just a couple quick numbers and I'll get to my main point here. But if you look at 2009, you had 1.67 million school kids. Um, 142,000 kids got OSS, or out of school suspension. So they were expelled or kicked out of school for some period of time. That's a bit, that's important because it will affect their education for the rest of their lives. It will affect their juvenile justice risk. So fast forward to all this work by us and other organizations and the Department of Education, you've got an increase in student population to 1.89 million. That's a big jump, but you've got a reduction in OSS to 117,000. 
So you've just you've just shaved off twenty five thousand kids a year, right? From from OSS across mm-hmm. the state. That's that's amazing, and we should celebrate that. And we have to be be really careful to protect that progress that we've made. Now, yeah. here's the challenge: if you look at the, the proportionality between particularly black children and other children in terms of how much of the discipline they bore back in 2010 to, uh, you know, year before last, or the last year we have to date on this, unchanged, that percentage, still three times more likely to be disciplined. Hmm. And that is not because of the children. Uh, that's yeah. of the culture of yeah. the state, the culture of the schools, um, the school climate, the way that we approach discipline, and also that these children are not are just simply not provided the same level of support in their community. Um, And so those are, and and sort of that's, that's a challenge, but it's also a fixable solution. Like it doesn't have to be that way. And we have to constantly remind ourselves of that, that um, history does not necessarily prescribe your future. And in Georgia, we have the opportunity to make big differences for kids and we could do it quickly if we really wanted to. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's that. That's a lot. That's uh, that's pretty interesting, too. I mean, that's uh, you got me thinking, though, like with your volunteers, it seems to me like public defenders would yeah, they would be a good resource of volunteers like do your work now. So it'll be easier later. <laughs> yeah. that's, well, that's right. That's right. I, mean, I, I hesitate to ask public defenders to do anything more than they're already saying, doing. I know they're so busy, <laughs> right? Our legal pol- and policy director's name is Caroline Durham, and she was um, a public defender. Um, for decades. And so she, mm-hmm. she actually brings a lot of that. Um, you know, one of the powerful things about working with public defenders is that they have seen, um, you know, over and over and over again, the impact of us not supporting kids like we should have. Right. What happens when those kids become adults and, you know, and work our, our expectation that they're going to, you know, that they're going to live a life a certain way and how that plays out for them. Mm-hmm. Public defenders have a very powerful perspective. We do have some programs where we try to work with public defenders, and one of those is in the school discipline area. So we're working with a few um, few jurisdictions where we're working out sort of relationships between those lawyers who would represent the children during the school tribunal and then the public mm-hmm. defender who would work with the child if there's a related criminal case. And often, often there are related criminal cases um, mm-hmm. about that. Now, it's kind of interesting. It's like I always say community versus home, community versus home. And I think of I think of these situations and I'm like, well, you know, we could do all we can, but it really is comes to the home. If the home's not a good, safe place, then and then I start thinking about it. I'm like, well, these kids, I mean, pre-COVID were spending more of their time not at home and at school or in the community. So really, the community has a, a much bigger responsibility than the home. Not saying the home doesn't have responsibility. Don't get me wrong. Uh but it's, it's it, you, you, when you said community, it kind of got me thinking about how that balances. And, and we, you know, there's only so much we can do for the home. Uh, you know, if it's a single mother who's working two jobs, like, you know, there's only so much that person can do to give to raise their kids when they have, you know, a lot of kids are getting raised by their cousins and big brothers and big sisters. Um, so a lot of a lot of stuff does come to the community. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about where a kid spends most of the kids time it's at home and at school and so there might be other community activities but that's a big chunk of the time and so you know you got to look at both of those and say okay where can we make the biggest impact and how can we do that we as an organization Mm -hmm. choose to focus on the school setting 
right? Because it's from there that a lot of kids do are introduced to this criminal justice system. Right. And, and once they get into it, they're locked into it. It's right. like, and then, and then looking at the home and saying, you know, what is one area where clearly the community and the statewide community could do a better job supporting the home? And that is mm-hmm. instability and housing conditions, right? Because those are often, those, those are, those are things that happen to a family. Yeah, there, there absolutely can be the result of decision-making on behalf of the parents, but often things are outside of the, those parents' um, ability to sort of make decisions, uh, sort of have an impact there. Um, so you mentioned the school setting. So let me just give you a, a, a little, a few numbers here to help sort mm-hmm. of match out that school setting thing. Um, so a large metro Atlanta county, right, juvenile court. I've got some um, numbers for them uh, because I was interested in finding out uh, and it wasn't just me. I, there are other folks, too. The, the Randy Waldman uh, at the Barton Center uh, mentioned in a presentation once. she said, we're seeing lower rates of juvenile justice involvement during the pandemic. And she said, so this kind of shows how the school to pipeline, school to prison pipeline works like that. It actually is a thing in the world like it sort of proved it. So I started digging around, looking at the numbers. And um, so one large metro Atlanta county in particular um, in 2000. 19, there were 560 referrals from school directly to juvenile court. And so for folks who are not, don't practice, aren't attorneys who don't practice in this area, that basically means the school has said to the juvenile court, here is a criminal case involving this child. So either a school resource officer, a school police officer, or the school administration or someone has referred the child to juvenile court, right? So this is a crime of some kind. Um, You should deal with this instead of the school dealing with it. So 560. Okay, so during 2020, though, right? So only 167. Mm-hmm. So that means that those children, that's 400 kids that didn't have justice involvement. Now, you might say, yeah, but they were out on the street. So kids get out and, get, you know, like what we know is like devil's hand, you know, idle hands, devil's work or whatever. So they're probably on the street. Well, well here, are the, here are the other stats. So for... 2019, 3,000 total delinquency cases for the for the court. 3,000, 3,000 kids, right? Well, 2020, 1,400. Hmm. So you didn't see the kids not in school. So then they just went out in the community and got in tons of trouble and did all kinds of terrible things. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, right, as communities, are okay, well, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, what what is happening in the schools, right? That is effectively creating risk for these kids. Hmm. And I should be really clear here. I'm not saying schools are bad places and that administrators and teachers are bad people. Not at all. Not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there are ways that we can com- we can support schools and support teachers better to help them sort of explore and use resources and learn about how they might be actually creating risk for these kids. And it's not hard to imagine. There's a, there's a famous scenario. There's a poem. It's a great poem. And it's about this young woman Gets up in the morning, she's got to take care of her two little brothers, right? Takes care of them, gets them all ready, gets them fed, gets them to school on time. That's great. She gets to school late, right? And this is her household. This is what she has to do. This is her responsibility. She gets to school late. So what happens to her? She gets in trouble, right? So instead of getting a pat on the back, instead of getting a star for the day, right? right, right. They say, oh, you're late. You're tardy. You know, it goes on your record. So she's tardy. Okay. So then, uh, but school's got to, you know, trying to get people in there, incentivize people to come to school on time, all that stuff, right? So she goes to school, she's late. So fine. So she gets started. Well, guess what? She forgot her pencil. 
So what happens? So she gets in trouble because she forgot her pencil. She's not prepared for school. So now she's got like the second check against her or whatever, right? Strike against her. So what does she do? This time she's a little frustrated, right? Because she didn't sleep enough. She's been working all morning, working her tail off. And she gets this and she gives a little lip. Like she just, you know what? She's like enough and says something back, which frankly, you know, most of us would be like, yeah, that's, that's legit. That makes sense, right? So she gets in trouble for that. Well, you can see how this just progresses. By the time something else happens at the end of the day, she's tired. She's overworked. Um, you know, she's under a lot of stress. She's already caught crap from people twice. And she eventually gets in trouble for defiant behavior or something like that. And eventually, you know, she gets in serious trouble. Now, like, we just can't deal with you. We're not going to deal with you. And if you look at school um, discipline, mm-hmm. a big chunk, a significant percentage of these kids are disciplined for things like defiance. It's not violent behavior. It's like defiance or other discipline, you know, where the school is just kind of sick of dealing with the kid. And school says they're sick of dealing with the kid. What that really means is that school is not being supported enough, right? Either through training or just resources to support those kids in the way they need to be supported. And we should hear that as Mm -hmm. a community and we should say, that's a cry for help, both on part of the child and on part of the school. There's some great thinkers that we have in the state about this. Um, Arianne Weldon, Dr. Gary McGivney, real leaders in this kind of um, thinking. And they would tell you that when a, that, communi- that, that behavior is communication, mm-hmm. and when a child is acting out at school, the child's communicating something to us about something outside of that moment. And we should be yeah. listening. So, so <laughs> what, you're, what you're saying is the schools need marriage counseling. Well, well, you know what? Schools do need counselors. I'm glad you said that because <laughs> one of our biggest pushes, one of our main areas in that second thing I told you about promoting supports for kids, yeah. school-based behavioral health, school-based mental health. And yeah. George, like with the school climate, we haven't talked about its progress in school climate reform. Uh, we just touched on it. But also with school-based behavioral health, Georgia is a leader in this across the country. Georgia, Georgians saw that school-based behavioral health, mental health services, in other words, providing mental health services for kids where they are when they need it, mm-hmm. the school, because remember, they're in school or at home, and especially with kids whose parents can't drive them all over the place or pay yeah. directly, finding ways to support having professional mental health counselors in schools to work directly with kids when they need it, and also to work with the school community, the teachers, help think of through discipline issues, all of that, makes a big difference. And Georgia recently, some, some Georgians um, recently released a study, Dr. McGivney, Erin Weldon, some others, um, that showed the positive correlation between providing those services and discipline outcomes, which is just, mm-hmm. a, frankly, it's a no-brainer. And if you go to these schools and you say to ask a teacher, have you referred kids to the mental health center for um, help when there's discipline issues? Absolutely, absolutely. And I talked to a school resource officer oh. and she, she had this wonderful story about engaging with the school counselor and the difference it made not only for that one child who was a runaway, kept running away from uh-huh. school. So what do you do? You bust a kid who runs away from school, right? The kid doesn't want to be in school, so you bust him. And eventually, then you, then you suspend them. Yeah, that's the irony. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so is. she, you know, she bu- is busting this kid, and, and it's frustrating because it keeps happening. And she can see where this kid's going, right? This is an Atlanta public school, school resource officer, and she was really concerned about that. So there would happen to be a school-based mental health counselor at the school. So she talked to her. The counselor said, well... Kids run away for a reason, right? There's something going on. It's not just because they don't like school. Yeah. They engaged with the child, found out what that particular issue was, and the child stopped running away. Well, next time there was a runaway, instead of just going after the kid using the same kind of tough approach, I mean, this, is, this, this woman has been trained in alternative 
ways of, of working with kids, restorative practices and other things. So she mm-hmm. was not just, you know, she wasn't doing anything that she was being thoughtful about approaching the child, but it was still this kind of punitive approach. And this time she knew, she said, I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to work with the counselor on this. And, and it was a much better outcome for that kid. Again, that child stopped running away, but didn't have to go through all of the other, you know, those uh, other uh, consequences that the first child did. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. That's, that's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it really does make a lot of sense. And it's, uh, it's the, just a change of approach can really make a difference. Yeah. And these are not, these are not expensive things to do. Um, yeah. Well, it's just, so, but it goes back to how do you, how do you make change? You know, it just like just tweaks like that. Uh, you kind of keep, you keep those going and you you affect lives, which then affect other lives. So that's, that's great. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I would make, I would challenge you on one little thing. So there, those aren't tweaks. Those are actually, you know, it's a significant, it's a significant thing the school has to do. So I, mm-hmm. I want some schools and I've talked to teachers who are like PBIS is an, is a one type of evidence-based um, school climate reform program. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of work. Like you've got to train and you've got oh, to be yeah. consistent and you've got to do all that. So it doesn't necessarily cost a ton of money in the sense that you're buying lots of equipment, but it is a significant effort and you have to have committed leadership. You've got to have trained teachers. Mm-hmm that engage your parents, all that stuff. But you're absolutely so, right. It's but how do you, yeah, Nick, how, how do you get teachers to be willing to do that when they're not getting paid enough as is? You know, uh, that's I mean, this is all other thing. Them, yeah, that's a great question. And teachers should be supported more. Absolutely. There's no doubt about, doubt about that. This is this, the, the, you know, the good news about this kind of thing is it actually improves their lives a lot. So if you look at schools uh-huh. who have implemented this type, these types of reforms, and I should say Georgia has grown from a place in 2005 or six Maybe it was 2007. There were they trained the first 100 schools, and now over half the schools in Georgia are trained in um, PBIS. So oh, okay. you've got a big, big growth in this area. It's called school climate reform. Um, and at those schools that do apply this with what they call high fidelity, so they follow mm-hmm. and, and really invest in it, you have higher teacher morale and higher teacher retention. And teacher retention is critical to student success. So if you look at um, a lot of researchers have done this, I'll lift up Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum because she's an Atlanta person, president emeritus of Spelman. Um, but, you know, the, the research that she's done shows um, or taught and talks about how teach in, in low income areas, particularly, you'll have higher turnover of teachers because often you have younger, less experienced teachers. There are by, mm-hmm. also caveat because it's important. And I always want to hold up teachers. There are a lot of teachers who have been working in, in uh, disadvantaged schools for a long time doing amazing work. But those schools do have often younger, less experienced teachers who turn over a lot higher. And that that's a that's an indicator of um, of lower student success. So hmm. if you implement these programs. It's just a nicer place to be. And, and, you know, as an adult, we can this is easy. This is easy to illustrate. Imagine a workplace where you go and first of all, you can't leave and you can't go to the bathroom unless you get permission. Right. You can't take a time out at a break. Right. Like no matter what. Um, People don't really know your name. They, um, they're really just kind of, it seems like they're looking to, you know, get you, for you to get in trouble for something. You don't have a lot of wiggle room. You can't talk, right? You're never allowed to talk. Um, and, it's a, it's a, and it's a gray, dismal place without a lot of color, no smiles. Like how, what's awful. Like, <laughs> awful, right? Yeah, like do you perform your best, right? Um, do you sneak around? Do you, are you, being respectful towards your boss, your boss is, I mean, like, you know what I mean? 
but then you you can then think of a much better work environment. It's the same for schools. So a welcoming mm -hmm. environment where people know the kids' names, where they welcome them when they come to school. That's colorful. That's engaging. Where they're looking, we're trying to support kids and make them feel supported and say it's okay to fail here. You can mess up. This is a good yeah. place to do that because you're going to learn. A lot of us who have the sort of have come from more privileged backgrounds or find ourselves in a more privileged space now, mm -hmm. it's, you know, we just went to schools where there were more resources, it was easier. And so that's like school for us. So a lot of, you know, folks don't re realize like this is a crisis for kids who didn't go to our schools. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you might, if you, when you ask about school climbing, you'll say, what is your, what is your memory? And I should have done this. I should, I should have done this. So Seth, what's your, when you think of elementary school, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Uh, PE. <laughs> yeah, right. Like the gymnasium, you know? Yeah. The gym, right. Like doing, playing a game or doing something. Um, uh, it wasn't geography, right. <laughs> it wasn't like, nah. what learned. it was what was going on. So when you ask, yeah. like, I remember Miss Thibodeau. Because I grew up in on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and everybody's got everyone's a Brosart or a Thibodeau or you know some kind of huh. with me. And uh, how nice she was to me. I don't remember what she taught me. Um, yeah. So it's what you feel. That's what really sticks with you, and that's a lot of what school climate reform is about. It's like mm -hmm. how you feel. Do you feel safe there? Do you know what you're supposed to do? Have you been told like what's expected of you? Have you been rewarded for good behavior? Yeah. Yeah. And when you can be recognized as to where it, someone comes to you to where you are instead of just uh, I, I found with the public school, my, my son goes to private school. I found with the public school, you know, if he was acting out, it's like you go to the, you go to the corner, you're bad versus in the public school. It's like, well, I mean, in the private school is more of well, what's going on. What's what, what's upsetting you today? Like what you did this, but what let's let's figure out why what got you to be so upset. It got you here. And then the kid has respect for the teacher because they're being seen and heard and yeah. it makes all the difference. Yeah. You know, there's some research out there, um, some research in England, particularly that follows us with the juvenile justice system there. If you, if a child feels like they have a voice that's heard, that they're being respected um, and that they understand the system, they are much more likely to follow the rules. Mm -hmm. right? So where a child feels like they're disrespected and ignored and it's hard for them to figure out what's going on, right? Those kids get in trouble more. Um, and that, that just mm -hmm. I think that makes intuitive sense for most of us. So there was a perfect example of your child that you're talking about where the school says, you're a partner in this. Let's mm -hmm. talk about it. Um, as opposed to a, maybe another approach which just said, these are the rules, whether or not you know them or not or whatever is going on. And we just expect that you follow them. Yeah. Now, I also wonder as we as we move into this next year, uh, if schools don't just open up and say if the schools still do this thing where you can only have smaller classes, be, might have 40 kids in a class, but we're doing alternate days, right? 20, 20 on 20 off, right? Um, we, we get a smaller class size. And does that make a difference? And if that does make if we really see a big difference in smaller class sizes, I mean, I, I'm not a fan of year round school. Um, but because I like my vacation too. Right. Uh, but, uh, but there's something to be said about the smaller class sizes and, and we, that we might actually see that though, that it really does make a big difference. I, you know, I don't, I don't know a lot about the impact of class size. Um, I've, I've heard that it, it can make a difference, especially in learning, but I don't know that, but I, I will give you an example, um, of a very simple technique that kind of plays into school climate. Cause you mentioned the timeout. Yeah. This was one of my first realizations of like, cool climate and, and sort of a very simple little thing that some places do that makes a big difference. Um, 
so this is with one of my kids. I have, I have three kids I mentioned earlier. And uh, it was, they were in first grade. And I grew up in Mississippi and, you know, I was going to elementary school in the early 80s and it was pretty old fashioned about discipline, right? So I, I so here's my kid. This is the new world. And there's kids in a great little school in Maryland, right? This mm-hmm. is, you know, and, um, and it was sort of very progressive about a lot of things. So he walks in, so he comes home and um, says, hey, so one, you know, one of the, or my mother, you know, uh, anyway back up so he comes home and says hey great day at school today whatever blah 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 i spent time in the timeout corner and i thought oh no like geez like we just got started <laughs> the first day and this is not what i expected right well my wife then said no no no, that's not what he means it's it's the timeout corner whenever the kids just feel like they need a break uh-huh. they can just go to the corner and there's like a deck of cards there and a couple cars to play with and something else. So they can just sit there and they spend two or three minutes there and they come back to their desk and they're fine. Huh. And um, I thought, of course, like that's genius. Like if someone was to tell me that I couldn't just like take a minute when I needed yeah. to take a minute, um, I would be like, this is, I would, I'd, I would just not work there anymore, you know, at my mm-hmm. place of employment. Um, and that's just one of those techniques that, you know, you need some training in, you got to kind of figure out. Um, but it actually helps these kids a lot. They just mm-hmm. take a minute. Um, and it's just, I a, wonder how that have played out as the kids got a little older and you had to like to argue you know, in that argument with them and you're, and you go to the kid because as an adult, you need to be able to go to a kid and say, look, like I need a minute. You got to respect me. I need a minute. Just calm myself down. Right. And I wonder if the kid, if that kind of leaned well, on to that a little. I will say you're always going to have individual challenges and, you know, sure. the approach to, to discipline is a light, like an approach to public health in a lot of ways. Like what you're trying to do is reduce the total amount of like dissident discipline incidents across in the whole school. Cause that reduces pressure on everybody. So just mm-hmm. by doing some of these reforms, you'll eliminate a lot of sort of baseline discipline stuff that allows you to focus resources on the kids who really need the most support. So there's mm-hmm. a, in these kind of conversations, there's a sort of a famous triangle or pyramid, and it's like a three-tier pyramid. And it's the three-tier pyramid lines up in school climate reform. It lines up in school-based behavioral health reform um, and school other types of school supports. And the bottom tier is mm-hmm. 80%. Like 80% of kids do stuff, right? They do stuff, all this silly stuff. They push the they push sure. the boundaries, whatever. Like, you know, and you can reduce a lot of discipline incidents just by kind of changing some practices making kids feel more supported, reducing some of the incentive to act out, that kind of stuff. Hmm. But that leaves you with the upper, more resources to focus on tier two, which is, you know, 15, I don't know what it is. I can't remember. It's like, you know, 15%. 15% of the kids, it's a little more serious. You need some more intervention there, right? These are the kids who are like going to try to take advantage of whatever, or they've got something else going on and you really need to spend some time with them and figure out like, what's the issue. And then you've got the top tier who are the 5%. And those kids like really need, concentrated support mm-hmm. um, but if you're distracted by stuff that you could probably easily eliminate just by changing some school practices um some additional training and, and really focusing and trying to implement pbis that gives you a lot more time to focus on that those, those other 20 percent, and their outcomes are going to be better too but yeah that's i mean we could there's a, there's a lot here so uh, i appreciate your time um i do want to just quickly talk about where did you get your funding I know you mentioned you're from. You mentioned that you're part of a, a larger 
group, but that you're individual here. So where does Georgia Appleseed get their funding from? Right. So we do not get funding from the national organization. Our funding mm-hmm. is raised in Georgia. Um, it comes primarily from Georgians and Georgia foundations. So, you know, and from a technical perspective, um, we get a certain percentage from foundation support. And often that's mm-hmm. called restricted funding. So that's funding for programming. And that and that's where, you know, that's the that's to support specific program with rules attached. So it will help me pay for an attorney to go do something but won't really pay the salary for the support staff who really keep the organization running. So it's, don't get me wrong. It's great. It's vital to the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really need that support. The more the, the sort of the better type of funding is what we call unrestricted funding. And that's the kind of funding that you raise when you're out, you know, rectioneering for people. Right. So this is where people make donations and say, we want to support the mission. We want to support this organization and we trust them to, use this money to do what's you know the best the best thing with it um that's the best type of funding because that allows mm-hmm. me to fund support staff and and help make the the lawyers more efficient at their work for example and also make their work their 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 job better you know they don't get paid a lot of money um and so we're you want to try to create a work environment that's supportive because these are folks who are driven by a mission and you need to give them the tools that they need to do what they've come to do. Mm-hmm. Like that's how you that's how you keep them motivated. They're remarkable folks, but you got to give them the tools they need. And so getting that type of funding is, is the type of funding where it gives you the flexibility to do that. Um, for those I'll, that are listening, you can go to www.gaappleseed.org. So as in Georgia, gaappleseed.org. And we've got our um, streaming fundraiser on april 23rd it's called good apple is annually we have the good apple um award dinner and this year it's good apple amplified and mm-hmm. uh it's actually it's actually gonna be really great i mean we have a, a, a wonderful list of speakers so um ambassador andrew young is gonna speak sally yates is gonna speak um we're gonna have uh, chairman sharon cooper uh of the georgia representative sharon mm-hmm. cooper who's gonna partner with us on stuff uh, former u.s attorney bj pack um, we're going to have Delfio Marsalis um, from New Orleans, who's a famous trombonist, and you've also heard of his brothers and his dad. Um, he's going to be, he's our live, he's our, he's going to be with us live. It's, he's got various songs that he's going to um, play for us as well. And then um, we have our keynote, who is Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, who I mentioned earlier. We're super mm-hmm. excited about this. She'll be interviewed by a young person uh, about her vision, uh, about what a world would be like where black and brown kids and LGBTQ kids and uh, and kids experiencing poverty were supported. What would that look like? Um, and how does that you know from her perspective? How can we? What can we do to sort of take apart the school to prison pipeline? So there's going to be music and a, a, a long list of wonderful speakers. And you'll learn more about us. Um, and of course, you'll have an opportunity to uh, to donate some really important money <laughs> into the organization. Absolutely. <laughs> That's wonderful. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so again, folks, Georgia Appleseed, GAAppleseed.org. Um, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed having you. I mean, obviously, we said a half hour, but we're almost on the hour mark. So there's definitely this organization does a lot. And I feel like we just touched, scratched the surface. So uh, thanks for what you do, what your organization, everyone involved and everyone that volunteers. Um, so yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, before I let you go, I always have my guests recommend a future guest, an Atlanta nonprofit innovator. Is there an or is, uh, is there a person that you'd like to recommend to be on Coffee Connections? 
Yeah, so we one of our partner organizations that we work with a lot is Voices for Georgia's Children. So okay. Erica Sitkoff is the executive director of Voices, and I think she uh, should be great to have on the show. They've done a lot of really innovative things around policy and about storytelling, because that's so important um, in getting the story out, have, having Georgians understand the significance of this work. So I think she'd be a great guest. Uh, welcome. Welcome to have her here. So thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your week. And uh, folks, we'll see you on Thursday with um, I think we've got Big Sisters, Big Brothers organization on. So looking forward to this. Keeping it, keeping it with the kids. Keep it with the kids this week. <laughs> All right, Michael. Thank you so much, everyone. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Seth.